Anybody ever seen that before? Yeah, maybe a couple of you. That's obviously not an American uh, public service announcement. That comes from England. Um, This past year, the prime minister uh, acknowledged uh, a significant social problem in England. And uh, I don't know if the government's the right place to go to for it, but but that's what government leaders do. They, they, they try to respond. And what she started was a ministry of loneliness. There is now a minister of defense and the treasury, but there's a minister of loneliness in England. Sounds silly, but here's the thing. A, a chronic percentage of the population in England is lonely. Feels utterly disconnected from almost anybody else in their world. And uh, this is one of their simple ways of trying to do something to, to open up people's lives and minds and imaginations. Almost inconceivable, right? I stepped into a Starbucks yesterday and uh, it was relatively busy. There was social interaction going on somewhat, but, but nobody was just walking around, walking up and talking to somebody. That was for sure. So that would be weird, right? Yeah. Um, and yet, that idea that I think everybody should talk to everybody is an interesting one. And it might even be a little closer to what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Um, we're not talking about the, the, the crisis of loneliness in England or the United States. I'm sure that uh, in very similar ways it exists in our own country. There's a good chance that here this morning, some of us feel and live relatively lonely lives. Uh, we're lonely people. We may be surrounded by human beings. We may even be in families, in homes with those people right next to us, and we can experience loneliness. But there are people who are, don't have a, even a community like this, a place where they can step into. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a situation, a reality, and it brings to mind some of the things that Jesus spoke. I'm going to say he encouraged us, but I also want you to remember the things he commanded us. Um, Sometimes we like to take our faith and and maybe even the Bible and tone it down just a little bit and say, these are good guidelines. You like guidelines? I like guidelines. For me, guidelines are kind of close to suggestions. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. I'm glad you uh, pointed that out to me. I'll think about it. Um, But but while Scripture undoubtedly has a lot of wisdom and a lot of suggestions for us, Nonetheless, sometimes Jesus just out and out tells us, this is what you are called to. This is why you're here. And Jesus was just following on from what God had spoken through leaders in Old Testament times. Um, The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, that question, will I be your neighbor? The art of neighboring, really living out that second great commandment that Jesus talked about. Love your neighbor as yourself. We've been talking about not just taking that commandment seriously, but taking it literally. That is paying attention to the people who live closest to us. Jesus was so helpful. I I referenced this, I believe, a couple weeks ago. I found in a Merriam-Webster dictionary from some years ago, two definitions for the word neighbor. First definition was someone who lives nearby, maybe next door. The second definition was this phraseology, which is really uncommon, and I don't think would be in a dictionary today at all. But, but you understand the phrase, fellow man, a neighbor 
Your neighbor is your fellow man. Your neighbor is your fellow human being. And then the dictionary actually gave, attributed the source of that definition because there actually is a source for that understanding of what a neighbor is. And do you know what it is? It's Jesus. Jesus was the one who helped people understand that our neighbor is another person. It's not just the person next door or just the person around the corner or just the people nearest to us or just our friends, but it is our fellow human beings. Nonetheless, when we think about Jesus' definition and we embrace that fully, my neighbor is my fellow man or my fellow woman or my fellow human being, sometimes quickly we can get to a level of abstraction. You know where we fly when I, I don't fly, when, I, when, I, when I'm, well, when I'm flying, when I'm not controlling, but I'm just flying in an airplane, in a big airplane, and I'm traveling across the country or across an ocean. You know, our, our cruising altitude is rather significant, 33, 35, 37,000 feet up in the air. And I like, I like both aisle seats and window seats. Anybody else like me? Like, I, I, I switch back and forth. I, I like the ease. I like the ease of being able to get up and down, if there's a reason to get up and down. Um, but I also like being by a window because I just want to watch. I, I want to be watching the takeoff. I want to watch the landing. And sometimes I just want to glance down. A couple years ago, I got to fly over the Sahara Desert. I looked down a few times, but it was the middle of the night. I've, seen the, I've flown over the Sahara Desert on the same trip two times, and I've never seen it. No good to look out then. But in the daytime, there's something to look at. And you look down. But when you're at cruising altitude, you're not close to anybody in particular. And sometimes we embrace the ideas of love of humanity and we keep it so general that in the end, we don't love anybody in particular. Maybe outside of our closest family and our closest friends. And so we're posing this idea that, that one way of living out the command, love your neighbors yourself, is to take it not just seriously, but literally, and to pay attention to the people God has placed us next to. Out of, out of this idea, in this sense, that Scripture teaches us that God sovereignly watches over our lives and that where we live is no simple accident, that it's within God's will that we live where we live and that God cares about impacting our world through us, those people who live closest to us. Listen again to these words from the Old Testament. Um, Jesus reiterated them and raised them up above all other commands to help summarize and, and crystallize and make vivid and specific and significant the command of, of God to his people. Uh, this story is from Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with his question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Paul the Apostle picked up this same idea from Jesus. Jesus found it in the Old Testament, but in a deeper sense, the Son of God uh, this was his understanding and his will from all eternity. But Paul the Apostle undoubtedly picked it up from Jesus himself, from the teaching he heard when he first became a follower of Jesus and not an oppressor of the followers of Jesus. In Romans 13, 
He writes this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Or in Galatians chapter 5, same teacher. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what would happen? What would happen if we took those commands, and in particular that single command, that second command, to love our neighbor as ourselves, what if we took that very seriously and we intended to obey it? I dare say I've woken up most days of my life and I've stepped out into my busyness and I've, or, or my non-busyness, depending on the day, but I don't know that I've normally gotten up in the morning and said, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that my purpose in the world today is to love you with all I am and all that I have, and my purpose today is to love my neighbor as myself. In fact, if you want to know the truth, that's not in my notes. I just am like reflecting on that right now. I don't know that I've ever gotten up and stepped out of the house with that understanding. But maybe you remember this from the first week, a couple weeks ago. There were a group of pastors in, our, in a Denver suburb, Arvada, who were meeting together, trying to, to pray together and talk together and read together and discuss together and brainstorm together about how they, as a cooperative Christian community, a unified Christian community in their, in their city, could have the greatest impact on the community and the citizens of Arvada. They talked about it, and they batted it back and forth, and eventually they started inviting uh, community leaders of various kinds, principals and superintendents and teachers and, and uh, police chiefs and fire chiefs and, and social workers and ultimately the mayor of the city. And the mayor said to them, Here's, if you really want to know what you, could, what you could do, if you could just get the people in your churches to, to be good neighbors to the people in their own neighborhood." That's the greatest contribution you could make. And when he left, they all looked at each other and like, the mayor just told us that, that we should tell our own people to do what Jesus told us to do 2,000 years ago, to love our neighbors as ourselves. We've grappled with that. Last Two weeks ago, we talked about taking it seriously. Last week, we grappled with the reality that it, it takes time. It's a little scary to think about it because um, there may be some of us with free time, there may be some of us who, who twiddle our thumbs occasionally, but my overall impression of humanity in this day and age is we are just rushed and busy and full. And the last thing any of us want is to, is to hear that God wants us to take some of our time and do something else with it. We've got to be creative. We've got we to think about all the ways, because here's the thing. As busy as we are, there's no question, and I'm, I'm pointing the finger back at myself, there's no question that we waste a lot of time, and we spend a lot of time doing things that we don't do that actually don't add anything at all to our lives. We're not happier because of certain things we devote hours to every week. We're not happier, we're not more joyful, we're not better, we're not better to be around. We just do them. 
And God wants to, to suggest, I believe, that we reclaim a little bit of that time and, and invest it in people close to us. Some of you, a whole, I think a whole bunch of you, picked these up last week, these magnets. And it's, it's real simple grids, tic-tac-toe grid. It shows a, a home in the middle that's you. Whatever your neighborhood looks like, the building you live in, the apartment building you live in, um, this idea that there are eight closest neighbors to you. Who are they? So I was visiting with a couple uh, from church at the beginning of the week, and we, we spent uh, over, over an hour together just talking, getting better acquainted, praying together. And then it was time for me to, to step out and leave, and so I got up and I, I started walking towards the front door. And in doing so, we're go- going by the kitchen. And the guy uh, motioned me over, and he took me to the refrigerator. And I, I just hadn't looked. And there on the refrigerator... Um, different approach to refrigerators than in my home. My, the refrigerator in my home is just packed with pictures and stuff. Anybody else? Anybody like that? There's two kinds of people in the world? I, I, probably, okay. Well, this was the other kind of people. You know? And they didn't have anything on their fridge except two of these. He apologized right away. He said, we, we took two. I'm sorry. <laughs> One for each half of this marriage. And and he took me up to it and he said, here are, we've written down the names of all our neighbors. We know, uh, we already knew most of them, but we didn't know this, this quadrant right here. And we met them last week. And this one, we've never really talked to, but we're getting together with them next week. And then the other one was just our way of thinking about people in the neighborhood of our lives, not the ones who live physically closest to us, but people in our, just in our, our sphere of life. And we're, we're, they're filling those in. And they're trying to be intentional about getting to know people closest to them. So I'm going to ask again. Anybody meet any neighbors this week? Okay, I see a couple. I know there's some of you who got it all filled out. I don't know how much I can encourage you that it is so difficult to love people we don't know. And really, what we're talking about is going from, at this point, stranger to acquaintance. You know, a stranger is someone I don't really know their name. An acquaintance is someone I do know their name. I screwed up someone's name this morning. Oh, man. Still, I'm still, Okay. That happens, okay? But stranger to acquaintances is just knowing someone's name, being able to say hi to them, and beginning to make that contact. That is what, what God calls us to, to pay attention. And then one step beyond that is actually going from acquaintance to um, some kind of relationship, getting to know people a little bit better. And how do you do that? Well, there's lots of ways, but how do you do it in a way that it doesn't take over your life? I mean, it's... it's you're, like I said, you're already busy enough. I want you to think about this from Jesus' life, Jesus' pattern of life. Um, Jesus was generally found again and again in settings, I'm going to call them a, a, a party setting, a, a social gathering. Jesus didn't stay away from those places. He seemed to to be drawn towards those places. He seemed to be drawn towards people, and people seemed to be drawn towards him. 
And it almost seemed like Jesus didn't find another person. Maybe this is where the command, the understanding of the command came from. Because he just, he just instinctively lived this way. This is who he was and who he is. But who he was was that he was drawn to people and he didn't cut people off. And so he ended up getting together and spending time with lots of different kinds of people. But he didn't cut people off. He didn't discard them or exclude them. But he included them, and he included them himself in their experience. Here's the thing that those community leaders, they had one more suggestion to um, those church leaders. They said, do you know what would really be great in our community? Is if there was just um, started to be a rash of block parties. If, if our town was overtaken by people having block parties. So that in any given community, it's not just one person knowing a bunch of other individuals, but people actually begin to get acquainted a little bit better and enjoy each other and trust each other. And, and again, when the mayor left and the pastors were talking more, they said, so once again, he's just actually taken us right back to what the Bible shows us. That that's what Jesus did. I want to look at a particular story with you this morning. It's from Luke chapter 7. We've been in Luke's gospel. We've been in chapter 10 the last few weeks. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. And it tells the story of one of these parties. Um, It was a party hosted by a Pharisee. We don't know for sure, but probably in the town of Capernaum. Um, A Pharisee. Those tend to be bad guys in, in the Gospels, or at least that's how we think of them. But, but this Pharisee, for whatever reason, we don't know for sure, was somewhat interested in Jesus, somewhat wanted to get better acquainted with him and find out more about him. And so he invited him to his home. And uh, the kind of setting in which that happened and, and, and occurred drew other people into the circle as well. I want to read that story to you. So would you stand with me as we listen to, to God's word from the... Gospel of Luke. Um, I'm going to actually read one more verse before we read this one. Uh, Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus said, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water from my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, 
as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little shows little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to spend a few minutes just getting into this scene. Pharisee has invited Jesus to his home. It's a, it's a banquet. It sounds like a private one-on-one meal, but it's not. In fact, the way homes were set up and these things happened, typically it would have been in a courtyard of this home center. There would have been a, a low-lying table there. Don't picture um, a table like this, one of the tables, kitchen table or dining room table in our homes, with chairs around it, but rather picture a low-lying table with, uh, with some couches around it. This was a, a meal at which people of the day and the time reclined. So picture, as Jesus arrives, that he comes into this home, he's directed to this place, and before long, whoever's uh, formerly a part of the meal is gathered around this table, and they're, they're lying down. Jesus is actually, his head is toward the table where the other people are, so he can converse with them and eat, and his feet are away from the table. You will find this in lots of different cultures if, if you travel. I remember um, being on a trip to visit missionaries in Thailand years ago, and as we gathered in a circle, the natural thing for me to do is to get down, sit like this, and if I'm in a circle, I'm just going to sit back and cross my feet and stick them out. Like that. But we are told very quickly in no uncertain terms, do not do that. That is so offensive. Because you know what? The feet are not, if you're barefoot, the feet are by many people not considered one of the most attractive elements of the human body. Feet are often dirty and smelly. Feet are what get into all the junk on on the road all the time. So we were told, as we sit, to keep our feet behind us, to face people with everything but your feet. Probably wasn't that far in this culture. And so Jesus would lie down. Again, I can't really do this. I'm not elevated very much, but, but they lie down on his side and on, on his left arm with his feet extended behind him. And then other people who gathered be able to eat here and lean in, generally be able to better look at the people on, on, around here than someone right next to him. But he could shift over easily enough. But you get the picture. Here's the thing. The setup wasn't totally private. And so what would happen is when it was a public figure, sometimes people would just wander in to the meal. Especially if it was, again, a public figure, a teacher. They could be on the periphery of what was going on. It was almost like an open house, a little bit. They weren't the, the center of attention, but they were welcome to come by and to listen to what was going on. And so Jesus had shown up at this home. He'd been welcomed in some level, invited, but he'd found his place. And he'd taken his sandals off because people always took their sandals off when they came into a home and went to the table. And after a few moments, we don't know how many other people wandered in, but there was a woman who came in. And everybody who was there knew the woman at some level right away. And it made the Pharisee, instinctively uncomfortable right away, and maybe some of the other people too, because she was, she was, she's not a respectable person. There was a label given later in the story. Simon thought to himself, she's a sinner. 
And in the Bible, we learn as Christians, Paul teaches us, among other things, not just Paul, but I, I think of his, his verse that many of us know from Romans 3.23, for, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The deepest teaching of Scripture is that every single one of us has a deep moral spiritual problem, deficit in our lives that separates us from God and separates us from who God created us to be in the first place. That affects all of us, and so we don't like to use the language too much, but we're all sinners. We're all people who do the wrong thing, and we're all people who are somewhat controlled by wrong in our lives that drives us away from God and drives us away from God, what God created us to be. And so this sounds weird in a way. To, is this woman a sinner? The implication is nobody else in that room was. And that's because that was almost like code language for certain kinds of sin, or maybe an intensity of sin, or something that was really frowned upon socially. We don't know for sure, but it seems that the greatest likelihood is this woman was a prostitute. Here's the thing. It's, again, as best we can guess, in the last hours or, or the last days, she had been near Jesus at some time. She had been present and watched him in action. She'd watched him heal people. She'd watched other people step up close to him. She'd listened to what he had to say, and something stirred in her heart and stirred in her mind, and she was drawn to Jesus. She's not a religious person. She didn't darken the, the, the religious space anywhere. It seemed counterintuitive to everybody else, but, but this prostitute was drawn towards Jesus. And maybe even something had not just stirred in her, in her heart, but actually begun to change in her because of her encounter from a distance with Jesus. And so she, was, she knew he was in this home, and she passed by, and she saw him, and she stepped in. And, and, and listen how, how Jesus t- um, or, or how Luke tells the story. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. That implies that that she's standing where his feet are. She's just standing there. And she isn't just her eyes, she's just not tearing up. She's actually crying, weeping, sufficient that that. That's not just a, a drop or two, but drops from her face are, are, are falling on, onto Jesus' feet. They're dusty feet. They're dirty feet. <laughs> the, her tears are, are making little lines uh, in the dirt, the dirty feet. And, and she's just lying there, and she, she watches that. And, and, and then she wipes them with her hair, and she kisses them and pours perfume on them. Again, it's, it's a weird scene. It's a crazy scene. What's going on? In this culture, uh, for a woman to undo her hair in public, not in the privacy of her home or not only before her husband, but to, to let her hair down like that was, was totally taboo. It was like uncovering her breasts in public. That's how it was viewed at that time. And she got down with that hair. She had nothing else, and she wiped his feet with her hair. And then she took that alabaster jar of perfume, and the only way to pour it out was to break it. And this was pricey stuff. She was not a wealthy person, but this was something of value she had, and she broke it, and she poured it out on his feet. 
She was giving him a gift. She was serving him. She was caring for him. She was expressing her heart and her life to him. And the Pharisee was watching all of this, and he said to himself, they say he's a prophet, but if he was really a prophet, he would know who this woman is, and he would not stand for her to be doing what she's doing, certainly not to him. He was deeply bothered. He was offended by it. He was offended by her life. He was offended by her presence. And he thought Jesus should be too. And he said, if he understood, if he was a prophet, he would know. But, but he doesn't. That's what he's thinking. And suddenly, Jesus seems to understand what's going on. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon says, teacher, tell me what it is. And then Jesus tells this little story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back. It's hard to get a sense of what that means. In, in the day, that was poor person's wages. A denarii, uh, um, 50 uh, denarii, a denarii what they would have been paid for a day normally, a day's wages. Um, So one person owed 500 days wages and another person owed 50 days wages. In in our terms, it would be like um, someone uh, beginning to get into a little debt problem, starting to run up some bills, starting to have a, a, a credit card that was just mounting in what what was owed and not being able to pay off. In fact, not making any progress at all, but month by month getting a little bit worse. And suddenly the cash flow was starting to be negative and not be able to pay for things that needed to be paid for. And getting a call that said, you're in trouble. Or uh, the other guy, 500 denarii, is someone who's not just maxed out one credit card, but done a few and still owes money on a college loan, and owes money on a house, and owes money on the car, and the TV, and this and that, and the amount of debt they owe is in six figures. I know people who've gotten into situations where they owe hundreds of thousands of dollars, and their income stream is very humble. It's not up to the task. And Jesus tells about these two guys, and he said, it's as if the the president of the bank calls you and says, you know what you owe, that you have no ability to pay back at all? Don't worry about it. It's wiped away. You don't owe a thing. And then Jesus poses the question to Simon, Simon, who do you think, who do you think appreciates this more? Which of them will love him more? And Simon says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. You got it, Simon. But Simon, I don't think you're getting it yet. So Jesus then turns to the woman. For the first time, he hasn't even, as best we know, hasn't even spoken to her, talked to her. And he turns to her, but he continues to talk to Simon. He points to her and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Simon, you think you've seen this woman. You think you know who she is. You wondered if I knew who she was. 
Simon, I know who she is. I know she's a sinner. I know she's done a lot of things in her life. I know that a lot of them are not good. I know she has moral, spiritual deficits and problems. I understand that. But do you see her? Do you see her face? Do you see her eyes? Have you observed how she lives? Have you observed what she's done since she walked in here? When I walked in, dusty feet and all, you did not welcome me warmly. Thanks for the invite to your home. I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for the food. It's really good. I'm enjoying the company. But you didn't come up and give me a kiss when I walked in. Can you picture certain places in the world, in the Middle East, Latin America, and Europe, when people get together and give a kiss on the side? That was how they greeted each other. But the Simon didn't greet Jesus that way. When I walked in, you did not greet me with a kiss, but she's not stopped kissing my feet since I came here. Simon, when I walked in, you didn't wash my feet. (laughs) They are dirty and stinky, and they're uncomfortable and tired. But since I came in, she came in, she's been washing my feet with her tears. You didn't anoint me like many people do when they're welcoming their good friends into a home. You didn't take some of your cheap olive oil and just touch my hair a little bit, my face with it, just as a way of welcome. Sounds bizarre, but it's what they did, Okay. Yet another reason you're glad to live in 2018 in the United States. It's a small thing, but it's something. All right. But, But you didn't do that to me. But she's broken costly perfume. And she's anointed my feet with that. Do you get the sense of who Jesus is? This passage tells us so much. It tells us about Jesus. It tells us something about him, that he is one who can see people. He can see us on the surface, but deep down, he understands. He understood this woman, and he understood this man. And even understanding everything, he came to the Pharisee's house. He was happy to be with the Pharisee. He was not ashamed to be in his presence. And he was happy to be with this woman who was a prostitute. He wasn't ashamed to be in her presence. He was able to draw close to both of them. That tells us something about Jesus. He was someone who forgave sin. He pronounced forgiveness. Only God has the authority to do that. Think about that for a while. But Jesus forgave her. The story tells us something in this woman about how we should respond to Jesus and how we should relate to him. And she expressed extraordinary love. C.S. Lewis, uh, years ago, his little book collected these, wrote letters to kids. And in a letter he wrote to a little girl, he wrote this. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope that you may always do so. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope that you may always do so. If you love Jesus, if you see the love of this woman, that is the kind of love for Jesus that we should nurture in our hearts because sometimes too many of us think we really don't have very much to be forgiven for or maybe nothing at all. And if we feel that way, we don't experience that much love to Jesus. But if you look deeply, do you know what you'll understand? I've come to understand so often God helps me to see again and again when I see somebody else's big sin, I see the signs of that sin or the realities in smaller ways in my own life. And God's spirit doesn't allow me in those moments to experience the pride that sometimes I might be drawn towards. 
I know that God's love for me in Christ is astounding. And I've been forgiven so much. And I want to love him more than I do. But I want you to see one final thing, that Jesus sees this woman. He sees her deeper than we do anywhere else. And that's what we're invited to. To not be afraid of our neighbors. There's so much in our culture that tells us to stay away and not complicate our lives and be suspicious of everybody. And we hear horrible stories about people all the time. If we watch the right television programs, we hear crazy stories about crazy people who live in neighborhoods just like us, who do horrific things. And before long, we have this fortress mentality. And we're afraid of the people near us and we are suspicious of all human beings. I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. But God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. First covenant, go home. Please, can I call on you? The series is done. We're on to something new next week. We're on to the book of Acts next week. But next Sunday, this is what I would love. Please listen to me. I'd love to ask the question, any of you meet anybody you haven't known before in your neighborhood? And you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see a congregation of hundreds of hands because this isn't rocket science and it doesn't take a lot of time. It's simple. Will you make a point this week of meeting someone and saying hi to someone you've not met before? I wouldn't say it if I didn't think that's not what Jesus wanted us to do. Let's go for it. And let's start the journey of living out the command in fresh ways for those closest to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've shown us. Thank you for the way you stepped into the home of a Pharisee and you took him seriously and you spoke boldly when you needed to. Thanks for the way you enjoyed his hospitality to the extent that it was hospitable. Thank you for the way you dealt with this woman who everybody else seemed to to, to spurn except when they wanted her services. But you didn't want her services, but you received her loving service, and you welcomed her, and you loved her. You saw them both, and you loved them both, and you've loved us. Because you've loved us first, love other people through us. We pray in Jesus' name.